Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is the president of Catholic Answers, Christopher Check writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains and has addressed audiences across the U.S. and in Europe. Christopher Check served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development, and he was named president in 2015. And it's always a pleasure to have back with us Christopher Check. So let's start with a story. The location is present-day Tunis uh, in North Africa. The time is the year of our Lord, 1270, just 21 years before the fall of Acre and the end of the Crusading era. All that remained of the once great city of Carthage was a ruined wall and a crude fortress built and rebuilt throughout the centuries by men with far less skill than that of the great seafarers who 14 centuries before had threatened to devour the young republic on the Tiber, Rome. Now in the year of our Lord 1270, the French king and his knights met little resistance as they took the poorly defended ruins. Their victory, however, was altogether pyrrhic. For now, the small army was forced to wait for reinforcements from the king's brother in Sicily, Charles of Anjou. Without reinforcements, the crusaders could not carry on the fight to the capital city of Tunis, the stronghold of Islamic power. If the North African campaign introduced the king's brother at all, it was only insofar as he saw it as an opportunity to advance his own ambitions in the Mediterranean basin. In their waiting, the warriors of France suffered in the August heat of the Barbary Coast. One by one, they fell to dysentery and fever. Among the first to die was the king's youngest son, John Tristan, who had himself been born on crusade 20 years before. And then illness seized the king, and he knew that he was dying. For three weeks, King Louis IX of, of France lay on his deathbed in his tent in the shadow of the old Carthaginian wall only a few miles from the plains of Zama, where 14 centuries before the Roman consul Scipio Africanus had crushed the army of Hannibal Barca and decided in, in the battle that decided the Second Punic War and secured Roman rule 
of the Mediterranean for centuries to come. The fading 56-year-old monarch may have felt some sorrow over his own military record. Although a careful logistician and a courageous soldier confident in battle who always led from the front, the king had to his name two failed crusades. On his face, however, there was no sign of regret. Instead, a quiet peace that reflected his understanding that for the Christian, real failure meant only one thing, to lose his soul. With that truth in mind, King Louis sent for his eldest, for the eldest of his surviving sons, Prince Philip. Handing him a letter penned with his own saintly hand, Louis charged the next king of France in all things first, to set his heart on love of God and to be ready to suffer any kind of torment, even loss of limb, rather than commit a mortal sin. The king enjoined his son to avail himself often of the sacraments, to unburden without reserve his heart to his confessor to attend especially to the needs of the poor, to avoid war with Christian princes, to surround himself with wise and good counselors, to honor his father and his mother, and never to tolerate blasphemy in his presence. When the letter had been read, the king asked to be laid on a bed covered with ashes spread in the form of a cross. Folding his arms across his chest, the most Christian king of France called upon his country's patrons, Saint-Denis and Saint-Jean-Vievre, and awaited deliverance from this veil of tears. As he awaited death, his thoughts must have turned to some 30 years before, when as a young man of just 28 years old, he also fought for his life on what all of France thought would be his deathbed. Some three decades earlier, on campaign against rebellious French barons in Poitou, Poitou you'll see on your map there, the 28-year-old king, Louis, had contracted an infection and a fever, a fever from which he never fully recovered. In 1244, two years after his campaign in the south of France, while the king and his queen, Marguerite of Provence, wintered at the royal residence in Pontoise, in the outskirts of Paris, the fever returned with a vengeance. The people of Paris feared Louis would die. They filled the city's churches in a perpetual vigil for his recovery. As the king lay motionless, two chambermaids argued over whether he had not already passed. One attempted to draw the sheet over the king's face, and the other caught her by the arm and insisted that the king was still alive. Both were startled when suddenly, Louis, after days of silence, interrupted their dispute and asked 
in a clear voice for a cross. When it was brought to him, he swore to lead an army to liberate the Holy Land if God would see him back to health. Within days, he was on his feet, and preparations for the king's crusade were underway. When Louis IX vowed his crusade, he had worn the crown of France for 18 years. Nonetheless, all of France, indeed all of Christendom, knew that Louis, King Louis, even in his majority, was more than assisted in ruling France by his mother, the remarkable Blanche of Castile. Blanche had served as regent of France from the time Louis was 12 until his 21st birthday. But this granddaughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine ever remained her son's closest political counsel. Blanche's own introduction to political life came early when as the 12-year-old girl daughter of Alfonso of Castile and his wife Eleanor of England Eleanor of Aquitaine she or Eleanor of England excuse me she according to the terms of a peace treaty between France and England was given in marriage to the son of King Philip Augustus the future Louis VIII of France the marriage should have gone to Blanche's sister, Euraka. There are two stories here. Either the French ambassador to the court of Castile or Eleanor of Aquitaine herself felt that the people of France would have difficulty with the name Euraka, which translates into French as magpie. According to another account, Eleanor argued that Blanche or Blanca, whites, had a personality more fitting to be queen consort. So, Euraka's loss was France's gain. With all of her grandmother's will, but none of her worldliness, the pious and devout Blanche had seen through her son's formation. From his mother, the young Louis took his deep commitment to the sacraments, to the divine office, and also his oft-repeated conviction that any bodily torment, in his famous uh, conversation with Joinville, uh, he, he says leprosy. It would be better to suffer from leprosy than to commit a mortal sin. By the way, I list at the top of your handout there some recommended reading. If you read nothing else on St. Louis, you should read Jean de Joinville's uh, account. He was a close friend of the king. He knew him, they were contemporaries. It's the most reliable account of Lewis's life. From Blanche, Lewis took his understanding that the duty of a Christian king was to make it easy and in fact necessary for his people to lead Christian lives. And from her, he inherited a France with more territory than the kingdom had ever ruled. As regent of France, so everyone knows a regent is someone who serves in the place of a minor who holds the throne, holds the crown, right? So as regent of France during Louis's minority, Blanche greatly increased the power of the French throne. But at the outset, 
the odds had been against her. Louis the Louis the Eighth, right? Louis's father, King Louis's father, died, uh, and Blanche's husband died of a fever on his way home to, from Paris to Paris from a crusade, the crusade against the Albigensians. A completely separate lecture topic that, if you all haven't done, I'm sure you have. It's got to be up there. Um, many of the great feudal lords of France saw this opportunity, the death of Louis VIII, to assert their independence from the throne. It's important to bear in mind, Brendan McGuire is very good on this in some of his lectures from the ICC. It's important to bear in mind that in the 13th century here and before, of course, we're not in the age of, of absolute monarchs, like in the 16th century especially, and 17th. This is an age where uh, the king very much cooperates with uh, the nobles. And in fact, in, 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 in earlier, uh, in, 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 in decades prior to the very beginning of the Crusades, the King of France is not the wealthiest man in France. Probably most of the wealth is down with Raymond of Toulouse, for example, in the south of France. So it's a different kind of relationship than we sometimes think of a king uh, later, 16th, 17th century, where they do have considerable authority. So nonetheless, the death of the king, the nobles, the barons, they feel, an they see an opportunity here to reassert their power, claim their autonomy. Blanche of Castile does not hesitate. First, she crushes the claim of one would-be usurper, an illegitimate son of Philip Augustus, so uh, uh, like a half-brother to Louis VIII, by swiftly arranging for the coronation of the 12-year-old boy, Louis IX, where at the cathedral at Rennes, which is the famous coronation site of the French kings going all the way back, uh, you know, to, 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 the, to the early dynasties. Um, named, why, why is it famous? It, it goes all the way back to the legend. I know we've spoken about this when we talked about Joan of Arc, for example, and maybe even in the Vendée, all the way back to the legend of St. Remy, where, where uh, he baptizes Clovis, the king of the Franks, and he's forgotten the holy oils, and the dove brings the oils down uh, and saves, uh, sa saves the moment there. A magnificent story. So Rans becomes the site of the coronation of all the French kings. And it's on your map there. So just, you know, uh, northeast of Paris. Uh, so Blanche swiftly, uh, yeah, there it is, right there. So Blanche swiftly arranges for the coronation of the 12-year-old Louis at Rennes. He's 12 years old. Louis, there's a charming anecdote from his life uh, that Joan Deal tells. And, um, it, and, and Rennes was very dear to, uh, and I think it used it in the promotional here for, for, the, for the lecture. Um, Rennes, of course, was very dear to Louis because that's where he took the crown of France. But he said that his native Poissy, outside of Paris, where he was born, was dearer to him because it was there that he received a gift, as he put it, of incomparable dignity above all honors of worldly rewards, an honor greater, far greater than the crown of France, what, of course, the gift of baptism. Next, one by one, Blanche starts to bring the barons to heal. 
either by treaty or by threat of force, the determined regent tore through this complex web of feudal claims and she wove new threads of relationships, tying them all to the French throne. She was, she was a master of diplomacy and, and politics. If the nobility of France were not eager to submit to the new boy king with a female regent who was not even, a, not even French, she was a Spaniard, right? She's from Castile, right? The people of France were overjoyed, right? They loved the boy king. And a plot, there's a, another famous story, a plot by the barons to kidnap the king when he's traveling from, on the road from Orléans to Paris uh, during the spring following his coronation. Uh, this plot was foiled by the people of France. As Joinville tells it, the road was thronged with men armed and unarmed, calling on our Lord to grant their young king a long and happy life and defend and guard him from his enemies. So the, 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 the barons couldn't seize, they couldn't kidnap the boy king because the whole road was lying from Orléans to Paris, Paris with, with well-wishers. Another chronicler, another contemporary chronicler, uh, William of Nangis, reports that the barons retreated from their conspiracy when they realized at this moment that the hand of God was with the young king. So whether the barons of France actually believed this or not, saw divine favor in the new king, Louis definitely devoted his days to meriting divine grace. At the center of all of his efforts was his own salvation. A salvation to be worked out in the context of his duties as the Christian king. So what did this mean? It meant not only applying the principles of the Catholic faith to the programs and policies of government, but also in so doing, and, and also culturally, creating a kingdom in which the people's hearts were filled with and whose actions were motivated by love of Jesus Christ. In countless ways, Lewis labored to build a Christian kingdom. And at the center of his efforts, inspiring his private pieties and the famed charity and justice with which he governed France, found their origin and led back to his vow to take the cross, to go on crusade. The, the, the vow to go on crusade, the vow to take the cross, was the central motivation in how Lewis behaved as the political, religious, and cultural head of France. After taking his vow, Lewis's first order of business was peace. So it, this is exactly the, 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 uh, the idea that I'm trying to get across. Before he can go on crusade, he has to have peace within the realm. Peace in France, but he hopes peace throughout Europe. But even before he could attack this task, he had first to make peace within his own family. So he had to make peace with Blanche, with his mother, who is driven to tears and, and fits of wailing 
right, by her son's plan to lead an army to the Holy Land. It, to be fair, Blanche had lost her own husband on crusade, you know, to the crusade with the Albigensians. Her three sons, uh, besides Louis, also planned to join their brother. The threat of another baronial uprising loomed. And probably she just clung too dearly to Lewis as, frankly, most mothers do. There is evidence for this last charge in an apparent jealousy that Blanche had for Lewis's wife, Marguerite. Joinville describes Blanche's efforts to keep them apart during the day and how the young couple would scheme to meet on the back stairs in secret. The anecdote is a little romantic, but it's also kind of troubling to think of the King of France so under the influence of his mother that he tried to conceal from her time that he was spending with his own wife. So it's refreshing when we read of Lewis's response to his grief-stricken mother, who brings in the local bishop and says, uh, tell my son that, uh, vow that he made while sick doesn't bind his conscience. And so Matthew Paris tells the story that Lewis, who's now in complete health, says, very well, I renounce my first vow, bring me another, actually what he does is he grabs the bishop's pectoral cross, and then he swears again to go on crusade. The same year that Lewis took the cross, 1244, the city of Jerusalem fell to 10,000 Kresmian Turkish horsemen, right? Kresmians are another breed of Turks like Seljuks, but not Seljuks, <laughs> uh, from the eastern side of uh, Anatolia. Um, th the fall of Jerusalem in 1244, after which Jerusalem is never again in the hands of Christians. The infidels massacred the population. They slaughtered the Armenian monks and nuns at the convent of St. James. They carried off the young boys and the virgins, some 7,000 of them. And they defiled the holy sites in ways that are uh, just more, even more vile than the Saracens had done. When news of the sack made its way back to France, the king was more convinced than ever of the providential timing of his vow. So he begins to prepare in earnest to go on, to, uh, to, to go on crusade, uh, but first to bring peace to France. Now, we would need a scorecard to keep track of the political battles and the intrigues that plagued France frankly, to say nothing of Europe, uh, in the middle of the 13th century. Within France, recalcitrant feudatories had never really stopped testing the king's authority. In his first significant military campaign as king, Louis, two years before his vow, had led an army south to Poitou, where he got his fever, right, to suppress a rebellion by some of the region's barons 
led by a man named Count Hugh of La Marche, who was allied with barons from Languedoc. You can see on the map in the southern region there, uh, basically where Languedoc is. The reasons for this rebellion are complex. Some of them find their origins in the Albigensian Crusade. Uh, but Lewis's method of resolving these, yeah, there's Languedoc right down there at the bottom. Um, but Lewis's methods of resolving these conflicts was the standard medieval practice. Treaty, uh, marriage, and he methodically and deliberately increases the authority of the throne of France and brings more and more territory under his control. And here, by the way, Blanche was not just a source of good political counsel, but she was a source of uh, brothers and uh, siblings that he could marry off in these uh, politically advantageous marriages. In the case of the rebellion in Poitou, Louis arranged through the Treaty of Paris, the marriage of his brother, Alphonse, to the daughter and heir of the Count of Toulouse. The wedding feast is one of those charming moments in, uh, in Joinville where you just read the story and you know that it's a true story. Um, the, the, uh, it, 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 it confirms the, the, the humanity of the, of, of the characters in the story. Blanche is at the wedding, Lewis's mother, Blanche is at the wedding feast and she's being waited on by the 18-year-old son of Saint Elizabeth of Hungary, who was just six years a saint. She had only been canonized six years before. And Blanche keeps kissing the boy on his forehead because she regarded, you know, the boy as sort of something as a, as a relic because she knows that Saint Margaret would have kissed her son on the forehead a lot. So she, throughout the wedding, she keeps kissing him on, on the forehead. It's a, just a beautiful, completely believable story about Blanche's piety and the kind of piety that she passed on to St. Louis. In 1246, two years after Louis's vow, he arranged a second marriage. This one for his younger brother, Charles, to Beatrice, heiress of Provence. Uh, Matthew Paris gives an account. Uh, Matthew Paris was a Benedictine monk, a chronicler, uh, mostly in England, but he knew Lewis. Um, Matthew Paris gives an account of this feast, and we get another detail about the humanity of some of the players. This one is not so edifying. Uh, we find the self-absorbed Charles complaining to his mother that uh, his wedding celebrations were not as elaborate as Lewis's. Now, it's true that Matthew Paris um, is frankly, like he's the, he's the quintessential 13th century gossip. Uh, so, and, and some of his stuff is frankly unreliable, but this jealousy is a forecast of Charles of Anjou's ambitions in Sicily at the expense of his brother's crusade. Unrest in France would have been enough for the king to resolve. But Lewis endeavored to resolve international disputes as well. Uh, though formally at war with Henry III, Lewis arranged for truce, Henry III, King of England, uh, Lewis arranged for truce with England 
for all of the time that he would be on crusade. The long-standing duel between Pope, or actually better, Popes and Emperor, uh, for uh, Frederick II, uh, Stupermundi, right, he, uh, had squared off against a series of Popes, deter uh, who, who the Popes and the Papal States were sandwiched between the imperial lands in Lombardia, in the north of France, and then in, in Sicily as well. So the Popes were ever kind of fighting for control uh, pinched as the papal states were between the empire's holdings. This particular dispute, dispute was, was beyond Lewis's capacity uh, to, to solve without formally declaring for one side, the papacy or the emperor. And Lewis knew that such a formal alliance would have been, would have not boded well for, for France, so for the sovereignty. It would, it would have threatened the sovereignty of France. So he kept out of that. Uh, and, and, and as a consequence, uh, his crusade was almost exclusively a French operation. Italians were battling Germans. Hungarians were busy with what? They were bracing for the Mongol hordes, right? Mid 13th century. Um, a century and a half before Lewis's reign, Pope Urban II, in calling, declaring the First Crusade, had called for an end uh, of wars within Christendom, which he said served man's interest and not God's. Uh, and, 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 so stop fighting these wars which serve man's interest in favor of war that serves the interests of God. Lewis regarded himself as the heir of, of this principle from Urban II both in practice, but in practice, his success was limited to, to France. And even there, the political rivalry slowed his progress in the most fundamental ways. And one of the most significant ways that it slowed his progress was in the matter of, of a significant one, the securing of what? A seaport uh, from which to embark the army. So what does Lewis do? He builds a harbor from scratch. So this, this is the story. The, the obvious choices for a port would have been, from which to embark the crusade, would have been two. Uh, and one of them for sure on your map there. Uh, well, I think they're both on your map. I don't know if I pointed them out. I should. Uh, Marseille and Montpellier. Both were superb ports. In fact, Marseille, I think, is the busiest port in France today by cargo tonnage. I think that's how they measure it. Uh, and I think it's something like the fifth busiest port in all of Europe. Um, so it's still quite an active port. Neither of these were in the king's control. So what did he do? His response was nothing short of heroic. He converted an unlikely backwater uh, uh, the town called Aigu Mort, that I know I put on the map, uh, into a major port. Aigu Mort means dead waters for its brackish lake and shortage of fresh water. So it was not a promising location. So what did Lewis do? He built long canals to connect the town's lake with an outer harbor on the Mediterranean Sea. 
small craft were loaded by the city walls, also built by Lewis, and some of which are still standing, by the way, you can see, uh, and then sent down these canals to the sea where their cargo was transferred to larger ships. The story of Aigu Mort, by the way, gives us a, a good glimpse of um, uh, Lewis, the, the urban developer, if you will. It gives us a sense of his land development policy. To create the port from scratch, he gave special financial concessions, you know, like tax incentive districts we would have today, something like that, to merchants and craftsmen who were willing to uh, relocate to Aigu Mort. And he also gave Iggy more greater local jurisdiction or political control over its own affairs, greater than most of the people of the towns of France uh, enjoyed. The charter of Iggy Mort is also an interesting, also provides some interesting uh, insights into social France in the 13th century. Among other things, it gives us a serious understanding uh, or a good sense of how seriously the medieval mind uh, regarded sins against marriage. Adulterers, according to the Charter of Aiguemort, were fined or driven naked through the streets. There's a, there's a curious addendum to the code shortly thereafter that says if the adulterer is in fact an adulteress, then she should have some clothes on. Where did Lewis get his ships? He first reached out to Venice, but negotiations with Venice quickly fell through. He determined the Venetians were unreliable. So he went to Genoa, and most of his ships uh, came from Genoa, the Genovese, and the rest came from Marseille. He left the business of securing and chartering the, uh, the ships that he needed for his expedition to the military religious orders. Specifically here, the Templars and the Hospitallers, or what were originally called the Knights of St. John. Both of these groups had considerable financial and especially the Templars. Um, in fact, I think I have a talk about the Templars that's up on the ICC site. Um, they had considerable experience in the logistics of sea transport. Uh, and so he left it to them to charter ships. It's important to understand that navies at this time were private enterprises. Ship owners made extraordinary fortunes ferrying pilgrims and crusaders to the Holy Land. But private navies caused some problems. And we'll, we see this later in the narrative, and Joanville will come to it when we're, when, with the fall of Damietta uh, in Egypt. But I'll just mention it to you briefly now. When things turned bad on the Egyptian campaign and Lewis is captured, sorry, spoiler alert, um, Marguerite has to bribe the Genovese ship captains to get them to stay to guard Damietta because Damietta becomes an essential bargaining chip in the ransom of the king and his army. Uh, ships of this era were considerably smaller than those of the 16th century, by the way, speaking of which, that's Don John's galley from Lepanta, the plans for that on the wall behind there in my office. Um, 
So the ships were considerably smaller than, than uh, ships of the, uh, of the 16th century. The largest ship in Lewis's fleet, maybe 80 feet, something like that. Not very big. It was called the Paradise. Uh, such a ship, it's claimed, I am a little doubtful here, uh, could hold about 100 knights and their horses. Um, it'd be cozy on there. Uh, without horses, these ships could carry some say 500, some say 800 men. Be pretty tight. Uh, tight quarters at sea, even for the nobility in the castles fore and aft. Another great detail about, the, about navies of this time that we get from Joinville, ships were loaded, um, holes would be cut or left rather in the sides of hulls during the construction of a ship. And then all the stores would be loaded through those holes. And then once loaded, they would be boarded up and sealed with pitch. Detailed records of the preparations for the crusade reveal Lewis's head for logistics. Um, he's remembered for many things and he really ought to be remembered very much as a logistician and, 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 and very much as a pioneer of logistics in the sense that um, logistics was an art that, of course, the Romans understood quite well, but after the fall of Rome in the West, did not get a lot of attention in the, in the you know, 500 years following, and in fact, five, six hundred years following, in fact, the early crusades, among other things, are, are plagued by uh, failures of, of lo logistical planning. Um, Lewis was, begins to bring the art of logistics back into the military conversation of, of the West and really ought to be remembered uh, for this. He was determined to succeed. Uh, he, he, here's an example. He arranged for a friendly port of rendezvous for his fleet, in this case, Cyprus, uh, where we're going to wrap up our remarks here in, in a bit, um, which he had supplied with provisions in advance. And again, Joinville's great. He gives us a description. As the ships are, are, are sailing towards Cyprus, Joinville gives these descriptions of the barrels, of the caskets of wine, the barrels of wine, the great mounds of wheat and barley and all the stores that he sees piled up on the island of Cyprus from, from a considerable distance at sea. And I, when I, the first time I read that passage, uh, those of you who read Herodotus' account of the Persian Wars, of course, you're gonna be, it's, gonna, it's, it's reminiscent of the mountains of grain that Herodotus describes that Xerxes uh, sets along, has set along his route of march uh, for his invasion of Greece in the fifth century BC. Another way to get our imaginations around the scale of the operation and thereby take measure of the king's commitment to the Crusades was the, the expense, the cost. Uh, Lewis's crusade cost about six times the annual budget of the realm for domestic affairs. 
from where did the revenue come? Uh, many of the barons who joined him paid their own way. Uh, not a few of them had to borrow the money from the king. Uh, th th this fact, by the way, I mentioned this before the, the talk, talking about the Crusades generally. This fact about Crusaders paying their own way, uh, and it's not just the Crusades of St. Louis, it's all, it's all of them, uh, really exposes the popular misconception that Crusaders went off to the Holy Land to make vast fortunes. The, va the fact is that many of them had to sell themselves, you know, virtually bankrupt themselves in order to raise the funds to go on crusade. Nearly two-thirds of the sum came from the dioceses of France. The balance came from the king's fortune. Okay, so that's the logistics and the finance of the thing. What about the soldiers? What about the crusaders? Shipping, supplies, provisions, money are of no use without crusaders. And it's reasonable to imagine that St. Louis would have faced a considerable recruiting challenge. Why? He was calling for a crusade at a time when the situation in Outremer looked quite bleak. I should have put that word Outremer. It's O-U-T-R-E-M-E-R. -E -E uh, I should have put that on the hand. It's the expression that the Franks used, uh, you know, across the sea, Outremer, right? It's the expression they used for where the Crusades were taking place. So the situation in Outremer looked quite bleak. I'm sorry, probably you all knew that. I, I apologize. So a century and a half, the situation looks very bleak. A century and a half of crusading since the Council of Clermont. And what do we have to show for it? Uh, a coastline, basically. Uh, so many Christians in the West were beginning to doubt the cause. Yet, Lewis assembled an army of 15,000, five times the size of the standing army in the Holy Land. And typically, who made up the standing army in the Holy Land? Well, these would have been the military religious orders, Templars and Knights of St. John. And in fact, that's part of the reason the Templars and the Knights of St. John grew, because it was necessary once you took territory to, you know, to garrison it and to castle it and to be able to defend it. So you had about 3,000 knights in the Holy Land. Lewis raises an army of 15,000. And he did this by exploiting a growing feeling, and one that he certainly shared, that a number of factors had recently converged to offer hope to a new crusade. What were they? One, the various Muslim powers were quarreling. Two, the West enjoyed naval superiority in the Mediterranean. And three, there was a dark horse, the Mongols, who were sweeping across the Middle East from the other direction. And Lewis genuinely entertained the hope, and he wasn't the only one that the Mongols, or Joinville sort of incorrectly refers to them as Tartars, could be allies in fighting Islam and might even be converted to Christianity. Although a major crusade had not been mounted since the disastrous siege of Damietta in 1219, there was still belief among the knighted class 
that a crusade to the Holy Land was something required of a Christian knight at least once. Lofty motives, to be sure, were sometimes diluted by dreams of high adventure and exotic lands and prospects of great wealth, very infrequently realized. In France, warriors had less and less work, in large part because of the new policies of King Louis. The law courts now settled matters, once settled by trial by combat. Of King, as King Louis began to resolve arguments, once settled by armies in the field. Lewis had outlawed trial by combat within the realm. Of greatest importance, however, was the fact that in the 13th century, was the fact that the 13th century was still the Christian age. And the promise of spiritual benefits spoke directly to the hearts of even the most violent men. Colorful clerics preached the King's Crusade with sermons about knights meeting demons in the forest, bewailing the growing number of Christians taking the cross. Other preachers compared the crusades with the poles that the men of Flanders would use to vault the canals in their city. A crusade was like a pole that you could use to vault across purgatory. Men who were reluctant to go on crusade were shamed with comparisons to barnyard hens or tethered cows. And Lewis himself was not above some pious trickery to fill his ranks. Before dawn's lights on Christmas morning, he invited all the knights of his household to mass when he gave them each a gift of a new robe made of especially fine material. And when the sun rose, the happy surprises of receiving such a gift gave way to alarm when the knights saw that Lewis had had crosses sewn on the shoulders of their cloaks. The knights realized they had been drafted, but far from resenting the trick, their reaction was to join in the rambunctious good nature that Lewis exuded in gathering his army. They called the king a hunter of pilgrims and a new fisher of men. Joinville gives another example of the palpable joy that came forth from the king as he added to his ranks. Judging the case of a deacon who had killed three neighborhood thugs, Lewis told the cleric that since he had shed blood, he could not receive major orders, but that his courage fitted him especially to go on crusade. And the crowd cheered Lewis's decision. The king toured France and his public appearances were crowd-thrilling events that confirmed the people of France in their confidence that victory in Outremer was coming. The crowning event, suitably, was an elaborate ceremony to dedicate the Saint-Chapelle, the magnificent oratory he had built to house the passion relics, including the crown of thorns. Under a man of lesser devotion, and charisma. The army might never have been raised, but Lewis's vigorous and virile piety made him the perfect crusader. Led as it was by the most Christian king of France, so carefully had it been planned, so well had it been funded, that all of France believed this expedition would succeed. I think this is a perfect place to 
stop, right? Okay. And so we didn't quite make it to Cyprus, but we will tomorrow as we pick up the story. Great. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.